Oh, hey, Paco. I didn't know you were in the studio already. Ready to record? Sure am. Say, what's that you've got there? Oh, Chad left his wallet in here. I'm just taking all of his cash. Like a loan? Nope. Uh, did he owe you some money then? No, I'm just taking it. There's enough here for me to pick up that Blu-ray copy of Grumman's 2, the new batch Criterion collection I've had my eye on. Oh, so you're stealing it. Sure, if you want to call it that. Well, that's what we call it in uh, Australia, and the last time I checked, I'm pretty sure stealing was wrong. Oh, is that a fact? Yeah, I'd say it's a fact. So, like, Socrates was mortal is a fact. I'm pretty sure we've been over this in another show, but yeah, it's a fact that Socrates was mortal. Then how do we know that? Well, there's a historical record. People wrote about him and his death and the hemlock, and of course, the last time I checked, he's not alive anymore, which is usually a pretty good indication that someone was mortal. I'd say that makes his mortality a fact. And so what about your claim that stealing is wrong? Where can we go to read about that? Or where can we find some observations about the world that proves that stealing is wrong is a fact? I can tell you exactly where we'll find that on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm Paco Allen. And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. In the opening of today's show, Paco and Mark were talking about whether a moral statement, stealing is wrong, is a fact or not. And Mark was saying that stealing is wrong is a fact about the world, just like Socrates was mortal is a fact. And that's a position known as moral realism, which says that moral sentences are either true or false. And the basic argument goes something like this. We think that some moral statements are true. For example, stealing for fun is wrong. And we know that truth is determined by the relationship between a statement and something in the world. So that's kind of how we generally think about the truth of statements. So in the statement, Socrates is a man, we think that that sentence is either true or false via its relationship to something in the external world. In this case, the, that something being Socrates. And so the argument goes that if we Wait, think, what? did you just did you just say the statement Socrates is a man? Um, I mean, I guess it works either way, but I think we were talking about Socrates <laughs> was immortal. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's because I'm like running together the different parts of our famous syllogism: all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. No, Socrates is Socrates is immortal. Socrates is immortal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there can only be one. Well, I think in, <laughs> yes, right. in one in one of the Anne Rice books, um, uh, where she has like historic uh, uh, views on on vampires, I think she may have some reference to a a Greek philosopher who who uh, tried to commit suicide by drinking hemlock, but in fact he was a, a vampire and so did not die. And that could have worked very well been uh, Socrates. See show notes. <laughs> If I can find it. <laughs> or, yeah, or not. <laughs> See show notes where Mark has to admit that he just made up a whole Socrates <laughs> vampire <laughs> like series for Anne Rice. 
I think there was there's there's a lot of fiction where Rasputin was a vampire, which is why he was never able to be killed after numerous attempts at shooting and stabbing and poisoning right. and drowning. Um okay, anyway. Uh so where was I? Oh, so He's a man, <laughs> man. <laughs> so Socrates is a man, or Socrates is mortal. We can determine the truth value of those sentences by looking at things out there in the world like Socrates and ascertaining whether or not that thing is in fact a man or is in fact mortal and so that's sort of the general approach to evaluating the the truth value of statements like that and so if we want to say that stealing is wrong or stealing for fun is wrong then presumably we need some kind of equivalent you know fact out in the world or thing out in the world um, that we can use to ascertain the truth value of that statement. Right. And I, th- I think one of the important things to note here is that when you talk about we need something out there in the world to help us determine the truth value of those statements, right? Like when you look at a statement like Socrates is immortal or water is made of H2O, those things are true independent of your thoughts or beliefs or opinions. They're true in the world regardless of what's going on in your mind. They're not dependent on opinions or anything like that. They're true, independent of the human mind. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. We're, we're talking about sort of objective truth and not just, you know, sort of subjective beliefs or ideas. And that's really sort of the power of moral realism is that we do we do want to say that it's true that stealing for fun is wrong or murdering innocent people for fun is wrong. And for the most part, we kind of all agree that it's tr- it's true that those things are wrong. And so one of the easiest ways to explain the fact that we all agree on it is that it's a fact. And, you know, furthermore, it's, this is an important topic because if we could determine that there are moral facts and we could then discover what they are, then we'd have access to facts that would allow us to, you know, sort of settle our disagreements about what's right and wrong. And so if moral realism is true and, and you know, moral statements, you know, are, are based in facts or like have objective values, then that's, you know, something that we should be really interested in. Right. Like we would we would no longer have debates about whether or not one particular culture makes a certain practice OK or excusable, you know, or whether or not historically, because based on culture and the period of time and popular beliefs, like you could no longer say, well, like that person didn't make a morally bad decision about owning a slave because of the time that they lived in or anything like there, just, there would be moral facts that are as true and real and universal and timeless as two plus two equals four. And we wouldn't have arguments or debates anymore about what's right or wrong if we could figure out these kind of universal axiomatic moral truths and so there have been a lot of different projects in moral philosophy to try to to try to define a version of moral realism that sticks um so that we can have those kind of objective values yeah i think the the one that we've um come closest to is that maybe somewhat magical measuring tape that mary poppins uses that she uh, she she pulls out and then measures the various children and herself and gets a full read on their their moral compass. 
but of course that's uh that's a little more more magical than we'd like to go into on this topic um the the first and most basic of the the methodologies that that chad you're you're talking about i'd like to propose would be naturalistic moral realism which seems to be the most um organic and uh free range of the the moral realisms <laughs> uh, uh okay <laughs> <laughs> is it cage free so, um, so yeah cage cage free philosophy non-gmo um yeah you, you got to clean off some of the dirt from this this philosophy before you put it in your mouth but uh you but know it's all a little natural. bit of dirt won't hurt you all natural well that's the thing naturalism is a is a philosophical term for an idea that a statement can only be true if it is compatible with the findings of science of nature you know it's the whole argument uh for marijuana how can marijuana be illegal it's natural dude <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that's the main. <laughs> that is the like, main. That's argument. the argument that is put forth in in courts of law when you know we're trying to decide between uh, state and federal rights, and you know so- somebody's grown marijuana because the state said it was okay, and then the FBI comes in and raids him. That's you know, it's natural, dude. Yeah. Pro tip: Don't hire Mark as your lawyer <laughs> in your marijuana defense case <laughs> against the federal nature. government. <laughs> anyway, uh, so so a statement can only be true if it's ultimately reducible down to the statement about natural laws, um, which you can measure with, of course, hard science. So um, I like to think of of naturalism in this sense and, and its relation to the sciences um, in the way that. When the Royal Society was first set up during you know the Age of Enlightenment, we didn't really have a word for science, and the closest we had was uh, the term natural philosophers, uh, which um, uh, you know people like Newton and um, and Hooke refer to themselves. They they were trying to discover the laws behind nature. So if you can uh, assign a moral judgment against a, a natural, measurable scientific fact, then you can have this objective, uh, unique approach to being able to measure uh, other. Uh, uh, moral uh, actions. So philosophers who who pursue this line of thinking try to find ways to link moral statements to the statements in one of these domains. Um, uh, uh, Steven Pinker, uh, um, a very uh, you know, recent scholar in this area, um, argues the fact that uh, moral facts are even linked to um, evolutionary fitness. Right. I'm reminded of the phrase survival of the fittest, It originally didn't come from Darwin himself, even though we associate it very closely with his work. Um, It was first used by a philosopher and biologist of the time, Herbert Spencer. Uh, Spencer wanted to show that an improved chance of survival for a person, an animal or a community was based on a sociological or even an economic advantage they had rather than just purely a biological one like Darwin stated. So what would would an example of a naturalist moral realist statement about um like some kind of moral judgment how, like how would that tie back to biology or physics or there are studies that show communities of animals where they perform altruistic acts for one another as part of their collective well-being as opposed to acting purely on their own behalf and furthering the goal of what richard dawkins referred to as the selfish gene the females of one troop of monkeys for instance that were studied will nurse other newborns in the group with their own milk if their offspring died prematurely. It's something that doesn't foster their own evolutionary fitness, but promotes the evolutionary fitness of the the group or community as a whole. Yeah, and that's really Pinker's argument, is that we have this sort of, I think he calls it the, a moral instinct to behave in ways that are beneficial to those around us. But I think in that whole line of 
thinking though is problematic because it, it it sort of like makes this leap from well something is good for the species so it's good or you know something is pleasurable so it's good um and and this this sort of attack on that naturalistic uh moral realism was kind of concisely formulated um by an english philosopher ge moore he he made great washing machines too <laughs> <laughs> and light bulbs uh it comes from a long uh tradition of philosophers who use only their first initials um instead of their name and in fact uh ge moore um hated his f- first names which were george and edward and, and he never used them and his wife called him bill <laughs> because he hated those names so much <laughs> But he, so he formulated this argument, which is now known as the open question argument, um, which he published in a book called Principia Ethica in 1903. And, and he kind of says of these, of these naturalist arguments that you're always going to end up with a, with a quote unquote open question. So, you know, in, in the, in the example of the, of the moral instinct or, or saying that something is good if it, furthers the fitness of the species the the open question argument would would go something like okay it's good for preserving the species but is preserving the species really a good thing so just to give it like a counter example a, a closed question in contrast to an open question is something like does a horse have four legs and we know like because of our definition of what a horse is um that the answer to that question is yes but an open question is something like, I know this is good for the f- evolutionary fitness of the species, but is it good? And it's hard to formulate a strong affirmative answer to that question. And so Moore's point is kind of like, anytime you posit some form of uh, naturalistic moral realism, you're going to be able to keep asking questions about you know, along the lines of, okay, well, you know, you, you say that pleasure is good or that fitness, evolutionary fitness is good, but like, what is it that makes that thing good? Hume kind of formulated this in a different way. He said, no ought follows from an is without the help of another ought. An extremely easy to understand sentence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no ought follows from an is without the help of another ought. It depends on what your definition of is, is. Who the hell is that? (laughs) (laughs) That was my impersonation of Mark doing an impersonation (laughs) of Bill Clinton. (laughs) So Moore's point is that we're never going to um, develop an adequate account of moral realism um, by trying to link it up to these um, other statements in, in... biology or psychology like we're always going to find that we that we get to um a claim like preserving the fitness of the species is good and still have an open question about why that is good it reminds me in some ways of like the first cause issue where you know you've got this chain of causal events and you can never like get back to a first cause you know it's like right yep trying to base these on you know statements like it's the survival of the species is good. Like that needs some kind of reason, some fundamental 
universal truth that that is a good thing and you've got to like base that on something else. So I think like that argument like kind of takes down uh, moral realism from a fundamental level. But I think you can even... Well, it takes down moral real- realism from a naturalistic point of view where you try to reduce moral statements to statements in other domains like biology or psychology. Sure. But what Moore argued was that while moral statements were not reducible to natural laws or or natural properties but nonetheless the moral moral statements do have a truth value um and he sort of pursued this other line of reasoning in moral realism which by contrast not surprisingly is called non-naturalistic moral realism which is that moral facts are they're like facts in mathematics or logic like we don't we get down to those facts, like two plus two equals four, and we it turns out that's where it bottoms out, and we don't have we don't have or require a further explanation um, or grounding for those axiomatic principles, and, and and you know and so Moore would say, look, if you have a if you have a problem with taking these straightforward moral facts at face value then you're, you you should have the same problem with taking these straightforward mathematical axioms at face value so there's not really any difference between i mean look like this statement killing innocent people for fun is wrong it seems like a true thing and and you know we're it's 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 also the case that we're not going to like find some empirical evidence for it out there in the world and more is saying that's the same uh, situation we're in with respect to statements like two plus two equals four or a million plus a million equals two million like we're not we don't have an experience of adding a million things to another million things and seeing two million things but nonetheless we're we know that that's a, that that's a fact yeah um i i definitely think it's an interesting argument i do think though that it's an easier argument to make with such dramatic statements as murdering children for fun is wrong yeah but that's all you need i mean you're just looking for you're just looking for a toehold to say like there are some moral facts like there are some moral statements that um, we can all agree to and once you have that um if you buy that that establishes that there are some moral facts then the task is just to figure out what the moral facts are so how much agreement does that require for it to be accepted as a fact um two-thirds majority <laughs> and a peer-reviewed study it's, uh, and uh, what is it what is it in the senate <laughs> does it need a super majority in the senate yes <laughs> yeah i just think that you're not going to find total agreement on that from like a hundred percent of society regardless of how dramatic you get with the statement there is always going to be individuals who are not going to agree with that statement and you can say like there's going to be individuals who don't agree with they're this. mentally ill yeah well sure but i mean but that's just like saying well we could probably dig up some people who think that two plus two equals five that doesn't mean it's not true that two plus two does not equal five okay all right so <laughs> so in addition to the open question argument which we just covered there have been a couple other uh important arguments against um, moral realism. One of these arguments claims that all moral statements are false. This is known as error theory. 
And then the other claims that all moral statements are meaningless. This is known as non-cognitivism. Uh, so in moral error theory, the most well-known moral error theorist is J.L. Mackey. Also, I think this is no, <laughs> it's first initials yeah. only. <laughs> yeah, another one of these uh, first initials only. He must have hated his first uh, and middle name. Um, so anyways, J.L. Mackey, otherwise known as Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I also think this is who Tom Cruise's character T.J. Mackey from Magnolia was based on, right? Oh, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know that um, in in I, just bef before we before we dive into Mackey, I want to give you some context for like the kind of guy he was before you like lay down his argument. In his obituary, um, he died in 1981. It was said that Mackey is said to have been capable of expressing total disagreement in such a genial way that the person being addressed might mistake the comment for a compliment. That's how I'd like us to behave on this show. <laughs> Paco, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> uh, okay. Also, Mark, Australian philosopher. J. Oh, Mackey. nice. No, so he did insult a lot of people then, I'm sure. <laughs> um, all right. Well, before he died, he laid out his main argument against moral realism. I think that goes without saying. <laughs> I don't know. He might be immortal. Yeah. <laughs> or he might be a vampire. Exactly. Yeah. Um, After dying and becoming a vampire, J.L. Mackey <laughs> wrote Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. Uh, right. So um, his 1977 book, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, um, I think the title is a bit of a spoiler in that it gives away the idea that Mackey <laughs> believes that ethics <laughs> must be invented by people rather than right. discovered. Right. So, right. Oh, by the way, who do you think would play J.L. Mackey? In the movie version of Moral Realism. Um, I kind of feel like you might already have an idea on this. <laughs> um, so uh, this is, this is uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how good this segment is. Are we going to do, do this every show now? <laughs> yeah, that's my plan. Uh, I mean, if we could travel back in time, maybe like uh, a George Bush Sr.? You know, that's the first thing that I thought of when I saw his photo, but a George Bush Sr. is not an actor. Right. Um, he's also a lot if, older. Yeah. Do you know who Bill Nighy is? Yeah, um, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. J.L. Mackey, like dead ringer. I was going to say, okay. I was going to go with Rod Serling. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good too. And we passed him by, but we we shouldn't forget G.E. Moore because there is a he has a dead ringer like A list actor. Oh, right. who is googling? That? Who is that? I think you know. Don't forget, Paco. The rule is you have to compare it to, to only their Wikipedia photo. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so the first thing I'll say about G.E. Moore's Wikipedia photo is he's doing it right because he's got a pipe. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I, I I don't know. Ian McKellen. Um, I guess a little bit. I think the pipe's throwing you off because it's giving you some Gandalf. Nah, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's not bad. The more that I look at this, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we also talked about Steven Pinker. Oh, jeez, I didn't know we were doing this every show. I didn't do my I didn't I didn't do my Wikipedia portrait research. <clears throat> okay, hit me with it. Rob Lowe. Oh, yeah. An old Rob Lowe. <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, Rob Lowe's getting kind of old, so like, it's just like straight Rob Lowe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, 
Look, so I we have now cast a movie with Ian McKellen, Bill Nighy, and Rob Lowe. Yeah, it's I amazing. mean, I think before we get Bill Nighy on board, uh, Mark's going to have to apologize to him for saying that like natural foods are better than GMO foods. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I think that wraps up the first half of the show. <laughs> Wait, no, 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 no. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. We wanted to talk um, about... Um, <laughs> error theory. Error we theory. wanted to talk about error theory and non-cognitivism. I, I, just, uh, I just want to interject Jesus. that if we were to cast a movie, it'd be wonderful if we could do a remake of uh, Conan the Barbarian, and then James Earl Jones could ask G. Moore, what is best in life? And G. Moore would be like, I don't know. Well, what is best in life? <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah, that was extremely on topic. I don't even know where that connected anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um. So error theory. Um, yep. So uh, error theory is actually something that is used in practices outside of philosophy, and it follows kind of a, a similar formula, but. Um, as a practice, it's kind of used to disprove um, different beliefs or, or assumptions, and it follows the same kind of basic structure, whether you're attacking a moral system like moral realism um, or the idea that objects uh, possess the property of color, right? So the error theory argument against color goes like this. We intuitively think that objects have color, like gremlins are green, but does it actually contain the color green? The error theorist says no. The color green is a concept that we've constructed in our minds as a result of certain wavelengths of light bouncing off the gremlin and our brain interpreting that as the idea of green. Right. But green isn't something that exists as a property of the gremlin outside of our mind. And so it's a similar kind of right. way of attacking moral theory that you attack you know, the idea of color. So the error theorist attacks morals by saying that there isn't anything real in the world to attach a moral quality of good or bad to, right? to like make it a factual statement. There's no object or thing we can point to in the world that has the moral property that we can use to prove that moral qualities are facts of the universe. And if you've been a listener of the show and you remember episode 16 where we talked about descriptivist name theory, you might remember how Bertrand Russell felt about the phrase, the present king of France is bald. He felt it contained this implicit assertion that there is actually a king of France. Right. And since there isn't a king of France, that sentence is false. So it's kind of like the same. Yeah, there's a huge parallel here. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same argument for moral statements is, is kind of that that argument against the idea or, or the statement that the present king of France of bald could ever be true. Right, because all of those moral statements... Um, have an implicit assertion th th that there's a, a fact that they are about. Um, and because there is not a fact that they are about, um, according to Moore, all of those moral statements are false. Is it kind of like the, uh, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? If there's no one to be um, hurt by a moral injustice, is there such thing as a moral injustice? I suppose it's a little <laughs> bit like yeah. that, yeah. Um and it's kind of, it's it, it 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 also sort of follows the 
the, the general arc of this argument follows the same sort of arc of the descriptivist theory of names because it, the same, you know, Russell gives this critique of Frege's theory of names, which kind of parallels. And, and I think in this in this analogy, Frege's theory of names kind of parallels the view of non-cognitivism, which holds that moral statements aren't false. They're, in fact, meaningless um, because they don't refer to anything, right? So like in the vocabulary of Russell and Frege and Wittgenstein, like these moral statements don't have a referent. And so that's kind of like that, that's another argument against moral realism, um, which is that it's not that these statements uh, are false. It's, it's that they're completely meaningless. Um, Right. Right. Because basically if like a moral statement can't be objectively true and if we can't know something that isn't true, then moral knowledge is impossible. And like any of those moral statements are meaningless, right? So like we talked about a couple statements, the one we mentioned at the top of the show and then mentioned like nine other times and we mentioned pretty much on every single podcast, Socrates <laughs> is immortal or something like H, you know, water is made up of H2O. These seem like objectively true but the statement murder is wrong isn't a statement like the other two, right? So is there any other way that we can describe that type of statement? Um, and there are other statements that we make uh, other than ones that are objectively true. There are statements uh, like commands, like do this or don't do that. Like those are commands. They're not statements about the truth value of something. Or we make statements like gross or hooray. So, you know, the non cognitivism point of view kind of concludes by saying maybe moral statements are more like those kinds of statements. So when you say I'm taking all of Chad's money without his permission, that's maybe more like saying stealing boo. Right. It's like, instead of saying that stealing is wrong is a moral fact. Like instead of saying stealing is wrong is true. When you say stealing is wrong, that's like saying stealing is wrong. Boo. Um, and so it's not cognitive in the sense that it's a belief about the world. It's non-cognitive in the sense that it's sort of like um, it it expresses a thought or an emotion, but it doesn't express a belief that can be either true or false. Right. So stealing. Yay. <laughs> Thanks for the money, Chad. <laughs> you go, investment bankers. <laughs> Subprime mortgages. Yay. <laughs> uh, we get a vote on something? Oh, yeah. We have to vote. We're just, we, we just need to vote on the like sort of fundamental question here, which is, are there moral facts? Uh, let's switch it up and have Mark go first. Okay. I would like to say, um, just to kind of bring it back to moral relativism, um, I, I think what, what Pinker was saying um, more along the lines was there's evolutionary psychology, but not necessarily ethical philosophy that can exist um, at that level. I think moral facts are, are purely an extension of um, our experiences as as human beings um, in the same way that language is uh, the side effect of, um, or sorry, philosophy is a side effect of an ineffective, imperfect language. So... Um, I'd say there aren't uh, moral facts, uh, much in the same way as uh, many Buddhist traditions uh, would say that you're not even asking the right question. Um, so that's that's my take. Paco? Um, I'm going to 
also say no. And I think that of all of the ideas that we've discussed um, on this show, I mean, there's a, a, a million, well, maybe not a million, but there's quite a few different uh, moral theories that we touched on in this episode. And um, there's more that we didn't get to. But of all the ideas that we talked about, I think that um, I would side the most with um, moral error theory in terms of rejecting uh, moral realism. There just doesn't seem to be anything that we can point to in the world that is going to like help us determine factually whether or not things are right morally right or wrong. And it, it seems like we're in some way, whatever that mecha- whatever that way or mechanism is, we're in some way kind of inventing these rules. Yeah, how do we know that? How do we know the win are the psychopaths and the psychopaths are sane? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, <laughs> so you're that's essentially the position which, which states that these moral statements are in fact making a claim about the world, but there are no facts that they there are no things in the world that they correspond to. So all of those claims are false. Um, right. In the same way that color is an idea that exists right. dependent of our minds, like so do these moral statements, and they aren't actually based on something tangible in the universe in the same way right. that green doesn't exist as a tangible right. thing in the universe. It right. is something that's constructed in our minds. It sounds like right. you're making a call it- back to the marijuana reference as well. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, legalize I would pe- it. <laughs> The college isn't our minds, I would man. paraphrase. I would paraphrase your position um, in the immortal words of the dude who said, yeah, well, you know, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, which is sort of, you know, I, I guess I, I agree with the dude on, on this issue. Like, unfortunately, I think that all of these moral assertions, like sort of hit a barrier when we try to connect them up to something out there in the world that is analogous to the, the facts or the, the observations about things out in the world that we use to determine the truth value of other statements. I do think that there's like an interesting thread here that we should pick up in some other show um, that professional philosophers will not want us to cover in a so-called philosophy podcast. Um, But that's this, uh, I think, very important idea that philosophers like Richard Rorty have put forward that um, we need to find a way to distinguish our our ways of of thinking about these kinds of things when we're in philosophy mode versus the way that we think about them when we're in, you know, living our everyday lives world. Because I, I do think that there is a there's a there's a very real sense in which it is true that stealing for fun is wrong. Um and that that's like a principle that we should defend in our everyday lives but when we put our philosopher hats on it's very difficult to find a way to come to a a sort of like objective justification of that statement but i mean that's like true for almost any philosophical discussion that has like a practical application right like yeah um i would also say that um moral statements to go back to 
the dude act a little bit like the rug and they do kind of, you know, they do kind of tie pull it all together. together. They do kind of tie it all together, right? So if you think about society as the room and uh, moral statements as the rug, you really can't go without them. Yeah. Okay. The, the, are, are the moral statements micturating on the rug? Is that is that the main issue? Potentially. <laughs> I've also come to the unhappy conclusion that I think I may be Donnie in our group. Mm. Um, we'll let the voters. Yeah, the, we'll let the listeners vote. <laughs> Can we create a poll on that? Yes, yeah, certainly. Sure, sure, Walter. <laughs> okay. All right. To the mid-show break. Hey everyone. As usual, we wanted to take a second and thank all of you for listening and for the support you've shown. If you're enjoying, you've got it all wrong. Why not help others discover the show? Providing a rating or review in iTunes helps make sure that we pop up in the directories, as does subscribing to the show. Plus, when you subscribe, you'll get the new episodes as soon as they're out. We had a lot of fun last week addressing some of your questions. If you want to be part of the show or correct a mistake Chad made, you can shoot an email to questions at you'vegotitallwrong.net. I think that takes care of all the housekeeping. Now back to the show. Okay, so this week's question comes from Kevin from Clarksville, Tennessee, who writes, Hey guys, my name is Kevin and I am blah, blah, blah. And I am, by the way, directly quoting Kevin. If a machine slash robot were to be created with the capabilities to fear death and experience pain and suffering in a similar way to humans, would it be considered wrong to torture it? I have never received a satisfying answer to this question. So the first thing I'm curious about is when Kevin says he's blah, 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 is he just <laughs> using like a shorthand because he doesn't want to explain his whole life? Or, or is, is that he... really, I am blah, 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 and he's a vampire? <laughs> And he's or, seriously <laughs> contemplating torturing some kind of machine robot that he's created because he's been alive for the last 2,000 years. So Ke Kevin is immortal. Or I was worried that, it, that he was saying, I am blah, 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 and he's a robot. Right. There was a glitch in his programming when he was <laughs> sending this fax to us. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> And yeah, and he's concerned about the prospect of his own torture. I have so I think the short answer to this question is um yes, it would be considered wrong to torture it. Yeah, I mean I think if you think about the reasons why we consider something to be wrong to do to other humans, like forget the whole meta ethics conversation that we just had in the first half of the show but like if you just think about it from a practical standpoint if we think about torturing somebody or causing them physical pain or suffering we think these things are wrong because we wouldn't want them to happen to us and we can experience pain and suffering and the idea of being tortured uh, doesn't sound good to anybody so it, it, any any sentient being that can experience those same things that we would experience that cause us to not want that to happen to us or cause us to not want that us, anybody to do that to another person. I think you can apply to uh, robots or right. uh, I don't know about machines because I think if you've got a machine that can experience uh, pain or suffering, you've 
maybe got a robot or an artificial intelligence or whatever. But, um, I mean, it's the, I, in some ways this is the same argument that, um, people apply to, um, animal rights, right. Is that right. any animal that can experience those same things that make us not want to torture other humans or kill other humans or eat other humans, uh, can be applied to animals. And so I don't see any reason why we wouldn't apply that to machine robots. Depends how tasty they are, I guess. So I, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm curious as to why uh, Kevin has never received a satisfying answer to this question, because I feel like we're giving a pretty satisfying answer, which is that, no, that, you know, there are presumably lots of other things in the universe other than humans that can experience pain and suffering in a way that's similar to the way that we experience it. And, and I don't see how it could be considered okay to torture those kinds of things. Um, you know, imagine that uh, visitors from another planet show up on earth tomorrow and they are able to experience pain and suffering in a way that's similar to us. Well, it's probably wrong to torture them um, regardless of whether or not they're humans because they're capable of experiencing those feelings or emotions and that's sort of like what if they know where the head of isis is and they won't tell us <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, thing there is no head of isis yeah yeah what if they know where one of the key leaders of isis is and they won't tell us yeah but now you're just asking the same question about you're you're just asking the same question about whether or not torture is acceptable in certain circumstances not whether or not torturable no i think i think what he's referring to enhanced interrogation <laughs> yeah you're not asking whether enhanced interrogation is appropriate for one kind of sentient being versus another you're just asking are there circumstances in which uh enhanced interrogation oh, is appropriate okay right right yeah so we can waterboard anybody who knows where that where a leader of isis is yeah regardless you water- of what planet they right, come from yeah I mean, if you're Donald Rumsfeld, uh, and I know this is a trigger for you, Paco, but if you're Donald, (laughs) (laughs) this is a family friendly show, but even though I'm going to mention Donald Rumsfeld. So if you're Donald Rumsfeld, it's, it's okay to torture the robot if you think you can gain meaningful intelligence, uh, from the robot. But I think if you're not Donald Rumsfeld, then you, then you have to believe that, if it's capable of these same kind of emotions and cognitive responses as a human, then that is sort of like, by definition, um, what dictates our moral obligations to that being. Okay. Well, I think we've probably answered Kevin's question. Um, But Kevin, if you could just write us back to clarify one whether or not you're a vampire, two, if not, (laughs) are you a robot that was experiencing a glitch in your programming when faxing us this question? And finally, like, who are you asking this question to that you're not getting satisfying answers from? I mean, maybe us. And and if you could just also include a copy of your latest Voight comp test as well, (laughs) we'd really appreciate it. Uh, and, And maybe fourth, stop torturing robots. I don't know. Maybe that's, is that the last option? I guess. Are you curious about whether or not we provided him with a satisfying answer? Nope. Okay. (laughs) I'm pretty sure we did. 
Yeah, yeah there no, will be I... a survey sent to you. Please, please rate us ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, accurate. I don't know. Correct. Maybe not. Satisfying. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay, I think that we have to wrap it up there. All right, everybody, we did it. Good enough. All right, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating in iTunes. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always do that online. You can email us at feedback at you've got it all wrong.net with your questions, philosophical conundrums, paradoxes, things we've screwed up on the show, mysteries of the universe, etc. cetera. Uh, you can find us online at you've got it all wrong.net and you can follow each of us on Twitter. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Sanders. Okay. All right. Mid-show break. Mid-show break. <laughs> That's my line. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were delivering it. <laughs> well, Mark kept talking about Big Lebowski references. Uh, okay, that was a little sloppy. I drank too much, but um, <laughs> well, so how many drinks did you have before you drank an entire drink while Mark and I recorded the intro? Uh, I had three drinks total. <laughs> oh, you just finished your third drink? Yeah. Oh, come on. Well, not counting the one I had with dinner. Well, this sounds like a roadside sobriety check. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been drinking, sir? I had a sip of beer. <laughs>